All right, good morning, everybody. Really glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 18 to 22 today. Last week we started into this passage, uh, which is easily the most difficult passage in 1 Peter. Honestly, it's one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament. I want to remind you right off the bat what two great scholars have said about these verses. John Piper said, I simply, I'm simply not sure what these verses mean. And I, and I joked with you last week that when I hear John Piper say something like that, I think, oh boy, um, we're in trouble. Um, the great reformer Martin Luther said of this passage, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So I want you to see again off the bat that the level of difficulty is high as we approach the text today, Uh, but we're going to approach the text nonetheless, right? Because we believe here at First Baptist Church that all scripture is inspired by God, all scripture is breathed out of his mouth, and we believe, we really do believe that all of it is profitable to us, profitable to us to uh, rebuke us, to uh, train us in righteousness so that we'll be equipped for every good work. While there is a lot in this passage that is difficult, there is some in verse 18 to 22 that's not difficult. And that's what we tried to focus on last week. We're taking two weeks on these few verses because I fear that if we preach this whole paragraph in one sermon, we would fail in drawing your attention to the great gospel truths that are present in the first part of the text. Because it takes so much time to untangle the second part of the text. So last week... What I tried to do was pull out this great diamond of the gospel, uh, clean it off, shine it up, let you see it clearly so that you are in awe and so that you rejoice. We did that by looking at every little piece of verse 18. You may have noticed in the the sermon last week there were a bunch of cross-references, a bunch of other passages of scripture that speak these same truths. In fact, what you don't know is that in my notes, as I'm looking at them, any Any quote that I put on the screen from another scholar, that's read in my notes. And any cross-reference, any other passage of scripture that I make reference to that we put on the screen, that's green in my notes. So I use red and green and some blue. I'll explain that to you another time. Um, But my, my notes last week looked like a Christmas card. Like it was, it was all, all red and all green. There was a whole bunch of green um, because there's so much of what we saw in the text last week that is throughout the New Testament. It's all over the place. What we saw last week was not a one-off note from Peter um, that exists only in this one place. It was the consistent theme of the New Testament is what we saw last week. And so we applied the text last week by saying Christians, believers in Jesus rejoice because we have Christ as our Savior. We have Christ as our Savior. He died for us in order to bring us to God. And he rose in victory and shares the victory with us by grace. Christians rejoice because we have Christ as our Savior and rejoice because we also have Christ as our example. You may remember this quote from Edmund Clowney that said, Our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ, which is, which is what Peter has been urging the people toward from the beginning. Our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ is grounded in the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer death for our sakes. Like we suffer for him following his suffering for us. He is our savior, right? And that's the big point of the gospel. And he is also our example. Christians rejoice because of that. And friends, guess those who are not trusting in Christ, I want to tell you, you can have Christ as your savior. You can have Christ as your savior. He died 
to bring sinners to God. And he rose in victory, and he shares a victory with all who repent and believe. And friends, you can have Christ as your example to see what it looks like to walk through a broken world with faithfulness, enduring persecution and opposition all the way to glorification. I invite you to repent and believe today. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today for salvation. Well, this week we're going to dive into the difficult portion of the text. And we want to do that with humility. We want to do that with great humility. We want to recognize that for 2,000 years, great and godly minds have come to different conclusions. I have a typo in my notes right there. It says different concussions, which is, pro- which is probably pretty accurate because it's like, that's like a brain injury, right? For 2,000 years, great and godly scholars have come to concussions over this text. So we're going to need to resist the urge to be dogmatic about our study today. As if anyone who comes to a conclusion different than ours is ungodly. Right? One scholar whose name is Millard Erickson notes that the number of questions, with the number of questions that this text raises, and the number of possible answers to those questions, he cites that there are no less than 180 exegetical combinations in theory. So, so that means that there are no less than 180 possibilities with these few verses. And no doubt someone has written in defense of each one of those 180 approaches to this text. There's a lot of difference of opinion. R.C. Sproul takes a really lighthearted approach to this when he says, My view of the meaning of this text is in the minority. I would hasten to add that most views about this passage are in the minority, since there is no majority view on the meaning of this text. And then he goes on and says, Yet I am in the minority of the minority in how I understand it. Later he says, This is a text about which I am open to correction and reproof, and I will be quick to ask the apostle when I see him in glory just what he meant by these very enigmatic words. Uh, I'm with him in that, and I'm going to say that again later. Uh, I can't wait to talk to Peter about what this is going on, what is going on in this text. Scott McKnight says that this passage is clearly unclear. Clearly unclear. I say all that to tell you that we need to approach with humility today. And it's also helpful to realize that Peter's original audience would have understood exactly what he was talking about. Like they, the people who received this letter initially wouldn't have been quite in the dark like we are, not, not trying to connect dots that are unfamiliar. They, they would have like got it right away. We need to understand that as well. And then the last thing I want to say by way of introduction is that we need to acknowledge that we need help. Like when we come to a study like this, we need to acknowledge that we need help and we need to realize that we have the best help ever in the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us as God's people. We need help and we have the best help. And so let's call on the Spirit to help us as we study this text today. So read it with me. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. It's what we're going to look at. It gets really ch- tricky starting in verse 19. God's word says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, 
having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need help today. So we ask that you would, by the Holy Spirit, open our eyes so that we may behold wondrous things from your word. And by the Spirit, shed light on this text so that we may see clearly. And by the Spirit, open our hearts to receive this word and to respond to it properly with our lives. We do not just want our minds to be enlightened today. And we do not just want our hearts to be stirred with affection today. We want our lives, our behavior, our conduct to be transformed. We want the very essence of our beings to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Christ who is our Savior. Christ who is our Lord. Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so let me start by reminding you of the summary that I presented to you last week. I said it a couple of times. I'll put it on the screen today. This is what I think is going on, big picture, in this text. This is the promise of salvation from the coming judgment through faith in the person and work of Jesus in light of persecution and opposition from the world. I think that's what's going on in the text. And therefore, it serves as an encouragement to the church in two ways. Number one, encouragement to persevere and endure with confidence. And number two, encouragement to proclaim the hope of salvation to unbelievers. It also serves as an offer of salvation to all who will believe in Jesus. So for those who are gathered with us or maybe listening somehow otherwise who aren't trusting in Christ, who aren't believing in Jesus, this is an invitation to repent and believe. In fact, I will say it this way at the end, get on the boat. Get on the boat. Get on the ark. There's only one way. There's only one way to pass through. There's only one way to be saved. Let's look at verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We tried to pick through this last week with a really fine-toothed comb. Seems to give us a whole lot of the very heart of the gospel. This verse Verse 18 would be good fodder for meditation to take each one of those phrases that we looked at closely last week and just chew on them for an hour or two, maybe chew on them for a day or two, maybe make it a week's worth of meditation on God's word to say, all right, on this day, I'm going to meditate on Christ died for sins. I'm just going to chew on that all day and think about what that means and, and ask the spirit to remind me of other places in scripture where I've seen this truth. And then the next day say, what, what does it mean that he died once for all? And then you're going you're gonna to go straight to Hebrews all the time in that, thinking about the superiority of Christ's sacrifice over all those other sacrifices. Gallons and gallons of blood shed in the temple. And Christ died once for all. And he cleanses us perfectly and makes us right before God. Then the next day, maybe chew on the fact that he, he is the just who died for the unjust. And then maybe talk, think about, meditate on, so that he might bring us to God. How, how in the world could a sinful man be brought near to a holy God? How, how in the world could that great chasm be bridged? Only through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only by trusting in the person and work of Christ can the sinful man be reconciled to the holy God. There is only one way for that. Now, it's good to meditate on this, and a lot has been said about the language at the end of verse 18, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. This is one of those places where there are several options that scholars talk about. Some take it to mean that he died, that Jesus died in the realm 
of the flesh and was made alive in the realm of the spirit. I'm a little bit troubled by that approach because it at least opens the door to the denial of the physical resurrection of Jesus. And a denial of the physical resurrection of Jesus would lead to a denial of the physical resurrection of his people, which is clearly taught in the scriptures. Both of those, physical resurrection of Jesus, physical resurrection of his people, both are taught in the scriptures. This view would at least open the door to limit the resurrection of Jesus to some kind of spiritual resurrection, which is not biblical, uh, and it is not good. (laughs) It's not helpful for us. Others take this as a reference to being put to death by the flesh, that is, by the hands of sinful men, and made alive by the Spirit. There's a way to read the prepositions there to work that way. That is, by the Holy Spirit, put to death by the hands of sinful men, made alive by the Holy Spirit. And I like this because if it's a biblical model of seeing all three persons of the Trinity involved in the resurrection of Christ, in fact, when we read in Romans uh, chapter 6 a minute ago, he was raised by the glory of the Father, right? The, raised himself to life, raised by the Spirit. We see all three persons involved in the resurrection of Christ, so I like that. I think it's best to see contrast in these statements. There's a contrast between death and life, right? That is a good biblical foundation. The contrast between death and life. There's also a contrast between flesh and spirit, which also has good biblical foundation, So I think we would be wise to not try to narrow our understanding, but notice the contrast that's going on here. But ultimately, I think it's best to receive this as a simple reference to the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is the very heart of the gospel. That's the diamond we looked at last week. This is a summary statement. Christ died and was raised. He died for sins. Not his sins, our sins. He died as our substitute, our atonement, our propitiation. And he rose in victory over every enemy, even death. Even death itself was conquered in the resurrection of Christ. And so we can say amen to that, right? I think we can all say amen to that. Like we, we might not be able to say amen to the realm of the flesh, realm of the spirit. We might not be able to say amen to the by the flesh, by the spirit. But we can say amen, all of us in this room, and we should, that Christ died and was raised for us so that we could be brought to God. We say amen, we're together on that, we delight in it, and then it gets tricky in verse 19. Look at it. It says, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. You're going to need to lean in to this a little bit. Like today, this section in particular is not the day to lean back and kind of get groggy. This is the day to lean in, turn your brain on, and think a little bit. There are three main schools of thought on these verses. And each of those three schools of thought have subsets within them that differ on the details. So this is how we get to 180 possibilities. I want, in our time today, to generally introduce you to the three big ideas. And as I do that, I'm going to make an argument against one of those ideas, make an argument for one of those ideas, and then the other one I'm going to acknowledge is also appealing. All right, and again, doing this with humility, doing this with uh, a recognition that I can't be dogmatic about this. If you look at this first one that I'm going to argue against and say, no, 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 I think that's what it, what it is, We're, we can be friends. Uh, in fact, we can be brothers and sisters in Christ even. 
So first, we have what I would call the second chance view. The second chance view. And in this view, people believe that Jesus, between his death and his resurrection, descended to hell and preached the gospel to those men and women who were rebellious and unbelieving and condemned, offering them an opportunity to repent and be saved. I think probably this is the most commonly held view in the church because of what seems to be an allusion to this in some versions of the Apostles' Creed. If you grew up in a tradition outside of the Baptist world, maybe you repeated the Apostles' Creed every time you got together for worship. And so you know the words, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. So so some of you see in that and are familiar with perhaps an allusion to Christ descending to hell, preaching the gospel to those who were condemned with the invitation to come out. I also think this is most popular because of its appeal to our sentiment. But there's very little biblical support for such a concept. In fact, a biblical case can easily be made against this view, even from the exhortations in 1 Peter. Peter, throughout this letter, has been consistently calling his people to live with holiness, right? But what's the point of living with holiness if you get a chance to repent and believe from hell? Peter has been calling his people to endure hostility from the fallen world. But what's the point if you could just join them and live the easy life and then repent later from hell? Peter has also been calling these people to win the world by their witness to the gospel and by their Christian lifestyle. What's the point? if Jesus himself is later going to go preach to all of them someday. And if this happened, if this particular aspect of this view happened, I'm confident that hell would be emptied out. I mean, imagine getting some experience of the full wrath of God upon you for your sins, and then hearing Jesus himself offer a way of relief. Everyone would believe, right? And this would lead to universalism at its absurd conclusion. And you would be in the company of Rob Bell with this logic. So I think this is the weakest view. Even though I would wager that if I had polled church attenders before the service, this would be the most common perspective to explain what Peter is talking about here. And again, if you still remain in that camp and you're convinced of that and you've studied it biblically, I'm like, oh, okay, okay. I don't think that's a strong view, but okay. Second, we have what I would call the fallen angels view. So first I talked about the second chance view, and now we're going to talk about the fallen angels view. In this view, some people see a reference to Genesis chapter 6. And I'm not just talking about the story of Noah and the flood, but the story that immediately precedes the flood narrative where the sons of God marry the daughters of men. A lot of people understand that as demons who are the ones that are doing this. Demons are the sons of God who marry the daughters of men and conceive children with them. And that those demons are judged, not just through the flood, but are spiritually imprisoned. And here, in this text, Christ goes and pronounces or proclaims final judgment upon them. All right, folks from this school also make reference to not just Genesis chapter 6, but some other ancient extra-biblical material from the book of Enoch that speaks of similar things. And this, this view has some appeal to me. 
like as I, as I reason through this and as I think through it, like this fallen angel's view makes some sense because Genesis chapter 6 is weird. It is really weird. The first part of Genesis chapter 6 is weird and it fits the weird tone of what's going on here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter also in 2 Peter seems to make some connections with the angels, the fallen angels who are being judged. He seems to speak, our same author seems to speak of similar things. And Jude also seems to add to this, connecting some dots as well. But the best connection comes right at the end of this very text. In fact, if we're talking about fallen angels who are the spirits who are now in prison to whom Christ made proclamation, then read verse 22 with that in mind. Look at it. Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So it seems to make some sense even in the immediate context. So while a biblical case can be made to support this view, the fallen angel's view, it's hard for me to see how this fits with Peter's pastoral purpose. Like all of, all of that makes some sense and I can see some dots scattered throughout the Bible I just don't understand how that idea of Jesus going to make final condemnation of angels who sinned long ago and were in prison fits with Peter's ultimate purpose here pastorally. As one of my friends said earlier this week, that feels like chasing a rabbit. And chasing rabbits is fun, right? But Peter, in his word to the chosen exiles, is super efficient. He's not wasting words. He doesn't seem to be chasing rabbits. So we must see how this fits in the context, and we must see how this fits with the pastoral purpose of Peter's letter. So to the fallen angel's view, I say, maybe, maybe, in fact, there are some versions of the first view, the second chance view, that I would say, maybe, but it's the third view that I want to call Noah as the example view that I think fits best with what Peter's doing in this letter. Noah as example. Here, people see a general reference to the story and the tradition of Noah from the Old Testament. This view holds that Christ went and made proclamation through Noah to the world in Noah's day. Christ preaching through Noah to the world in Noah's day. And the world heard, but they didn't believe, which is disobedience. And they were judged, so they are now in prison. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter has already established that it is the Spirit of Christ who was making proclamation through the prophets in the Old Testament days. So when, when Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah stands up to proclaim, it is Christ preaching through them. It is the Spirit of Christ indeed preaching through them. Look at it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know at what, what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So, so Peter has established this concept that when the Old Testament prophets were proclaiming, it was the Spirit of Christ who was speaking through them. And it's not a stretch to say that Noah was a prophet. Jewish people in the first century would not have balked at that at all. They would have not have had no problem with someone saying Noah was a prophet. In fact, Peter had no problem talking about Noah this way. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, P 
Peter refers to Noah as, quote, a preacher of righteousness. Calls Noah a preacher of righteousness as he recalls, once again, how God saved Noah and seven others when he judged the world with the flood. So the concept is Christ proclaiming the gospel through Noah to Noah's neighbors, even as Noah was building the ark. And Jewish tradition says that during this time of the building of the ark, Noah was ridiculed, Noah was mocked, Noah was rejected, and he kept preaching nonetheless. Some would say for 120 years, in the face of opposition, in light of the coming judgment, Noah kept preaching the good news of salvation. But those neighbors of his who heard it, rejected it. They embraced their sin, they rejected his good news, and they are now in prison because of their disobedience. Don't forget, don't forget as we've been reading 1 Peter and studying it, Peter has been using the word obedience or disobedience to refer to faith or unbelief, right? Obedience equals belief and disobedience equals unbelief in 1 Peter. So despite rejection and hostility from his neighbors, Noah did right. Noah lived with holiness. Noah preached the gospel. And when judgment came in the form of the flood, he was saved, along with his family, brought through the water. Does that make sense? That's the picture. And this seems to have parallels with the Lord Jesus that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. There was rejection. Even though Jesus did right, he was rejected by the world. Even though he lived with holiness, he was rejected by the world. Even though he preached the gospel, he was rejected by the world. And when judgment came, not for him, but for us, him in our place, when judgment came in the cross, he was brought through by the resurrection. There seems to be a pattern with Noah that follows the pattern with Jesus that fits with what Peter has been calling his audience to. He has been saying, you'll be rejected from, by the world, even though you do what is right, and even though you suffer for doing what is right, keep on living with holiness, keep on preaching the gospel, keep on trying to win the world. And here, he is encouraging them with a reminder that when the judgment comes, when the rains start falling, they will be saved. They will come through by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. He's giving them the hope of final deliverance. The same hope that Noah experienced. The same hope that Christ paved the way for by his own resurrection. So Noah, as an example, fits well into 1 Peter. I don't want to be dogmatic about it. So I look forward with R.C. Sproul to sitting down with Peter and Noah one day. Saying, how does all this work, fellas? Can you give me a couple hundred years to explain this to me? Talk me through it. I want to say wherever you land on this, make sure you build your foundation on the Bible, on biblical principles and not mere sentiment. There are options here that feel good that might not be supported by the Bible. He goes on in verse 21 and says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just when we thought it was difficult, 
we get to a more difficult place. The word corresponding there at the, at the beginning of verse 21 is translated by NIV to say this water symbolizes baptism. This water symbolizes baptism. Peter says baptism now saves you. And some of you are thinking, Chris, don't you say every time you get in that water to baptize someone that this water does not save them? Chris, have you not read this verse? And I would say, friend, have you not read the rest of this verse? Because the rest of this verse goes on to clarify, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter makes clear that he is not talking primarily about water baptism here but about the true baptism, spiritual baptism, that is our union with Christ. That is our union with Christ, which happens by grace through faith in Christ. A union with Christ that is invisible. A union with Christ that is spiritual. That is then illustrated in water baptism. This is why I had Laura read from Romans chapter 6. I'll draw your attention to one part of that text here. He says this, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus? Now, we Baptists read that and think that that happens up there. We, we are baptized into Christ when the preacher dunks us under the water. But it's simply not the case. We are baptized into Christ when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. We are immersed in him. We are united with him. That's why Paul has no problem switching between the language of baptism and union with Christ in this text. Like notice that as he talks about it. Baptism and union with Christ he seems to use interchangeably because when he speaks about the spiritual reality, they are interchangeable. Read on. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We have been united with him in his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. What matters most is your baptism into Christ. By grace, through faith in Jesus. Your union with him in his death to sin. Your union with him in his resurrection, victorious life. What matters most is that spiritual baptism that is then illustrated in a tangible way in water baptism. So one preacher says, the only baptism that saves people is dry. That's an interesting word that we Baptists need to hear. The only baptism that saves you is dry, the spiritual one, into the death as well as the resurrection of Christ, of those who appeal to God to place them in the spiritual ark of salvation safety. Water baptism does not save. It is the Holy Spirit's baptizing the sinner safely into Jesus Christ, the elect's only ark of salvation that forever rescues the sinner from hell. And brings him securely to heaven. You are brought into the ark that is Christ by faith in Christ. Spiritually united with him so that you'll be brought through the judgment. That is a spiritual invisible reality of which water baptism that we do up there 
is a picture, a tangible experience that illustrates this invisible reality that happens by grace through faith. On its own, apart from faith, water baptism means nothing. If it did, if water baptism was the key to all of it, we scrap VBS and we just have a swim party. And Joe and Dylan and I, we dunk as many of those kids as we can, whether they know it or not. Just get them under the water, bring them up out of the water in the name of Jesus somehow, and they'll be saved. But we know that's ridiculous, right? Apart from personal faith in Christ, water baptism doesn't mean anything. But friends, with faith in Jesus, with a new life and a new heart and union with him by grace through faith, water baptism means a ton. Because it's a picture of this life-changing experience you've had with God, with Christ. So water baptism is not nothing, it's something. It's just not the main thing. It's a picture of the main thing. Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope you understand that. And that's what Peter is trying to correct when he says baptism now saves you. I'm not talking about the removal of dirt from the flesh. I'm talking about an appeal to God for a good conscience. Well, how do we get a good conscience before God? How do, we, how do I get my conscience cleansed before God? How am I justified in the sight of a holy God? How, can, how am I as a sinful human justified in the sight of God? Have a clear conscience before the holy God? Well, surely it's not simply by getting dunked in the water apart from faith and repentance. Rather, it is through faith and repentance. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is by resting my whole weight on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through my spiritual union with him, whereby his righteousness is credited to my account. That doesn't happen by baptism. That doesn't happen by water baptism. That happens by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That happens by union with him, his righteousness credited to your account. It happens through repentance and faith. And is, and is ah, resting on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, through the resurrection. Through the resurrection. Here, Peter goes all the way back to where we started. Peter is with Paul in saying, if there's no resurrection of Jesus, we've got no hope. We've got no resurrection of Jesus, there's no hope for you. You're still in your sins. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we've been brought out. We've been brought to God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. This is where he started the whole letter. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is symbolized in water baptism when you come up out of the water, which is realized in your union with Christ in his death to sin and his resurrection. You are with him in all of that spiritually, symbolized in the water. To obtain, verse 4, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Read on in verse 22. Peter goes on and says, Of Jesus who was raised, he is also at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, as I said earlier, this is part of why some people see the proclamation of victory to fallen angels as the subject matter of this whole text. I get that with this verse. It makes some sense. But one could also view 
this statement in verse 22 as the cherry on top that rejoices in Christ's victory over every power, over every enemy, over every obstacle through his resurrection. He has not just been raised from the dead. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, the place of authority and power and victory. If this is the case, it would reinforce Pastor Peter's encouragement to these struggling believers to stay the course and remain faithful, to keep on preaching and to endure because the victory is certain. For Christ, by virtue of his resurrection, has won the war. Zoom in on the tense of this and receive it like Peter's audience would. He is at the right hand of God. He not just will be someday at the right hand of God, he is currently right now. And think about how Peter's audience would have received that. Who's in control of everything going on around you? Caesar? No. Satan? No. Jesus is the one in the position of power and authority. All things are in subjection to him. And there is coming a day where there will be no doubt about that. But it is certainly true, even now. And that would have been encouraging to Peter's struggling audience. So I think Wayne Grudem nails it when he gives this summary statement. He says, This passage, once cleared of misunderstanding, should also function today as an encouragement to us to be bold in our witness as Noah was. To be confident that though we may be few, only eight, God will certainly save us as he did Noah. And to remind us that just as certainly as the flood eventually came, so final judgment will certainly come to our world as well. And Christ will ultimately triumph over all the evil in the universe. And if we are his, if we are in him, we will triumph with him. So I say, this text is a promise of salvation from the coming judgment, from the flood that is coming. The flood of God's wrath against sin and sinners. It's a promise of salvation from the coming judgment through faith in the person and work of Jesus through faith in him, in light of persecution and opposition from this unbelieving world. So it serves, therefore, as an encouragement to the church. And so if you are part of the church, receive this encouragement. Persevere and endure with confidence. Don't be surprised that the world is against you. It's always been against God and his people. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you, Peter will say, in a few weeks. Persevere and endure with confidence because victory is coming. Also receive it as an encouragement to proclaim the hope of salvation to unbelievers. It seems like Noah wasn't just over there building his ark oblivious to the world around him. Peter identifies him as a preacher, a proclaimer of righteousness. He was proclaiming good news even as people mocked him because he knew the judgment was coming. What one preacher, oh man, powerfully said, Noah had one sermon. It's going to rain. One sermon. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. And there is one hope of salvation. Brothers and sisters, we have that same message to proclaim. Judgment is coming. There's only one way to be saved from the wrath of God, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a third encouragement that we're going to talk about next week to the church, and that is to Live with Christ-like righteousness. This text motivates us to live with Christ-like righteousness. That's where Peter's going to go next. 
So it serves that way for the church. Those are the applications for the church. Endure with confidence, proclaim the hope of salvation, and live with Christ-like righteousness. And for the rest, it serves as an offer of salvation to all who will believe in Jesus. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. Get on the boat. Get on the boat by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. He's the only way to come through. He's the only one who can come through. He's already come through himself, and he will bring us through with him. If we are united with him by faith. And listen, if you are united with him by faith, get baptized and tell the world about it. But there's no need to get baptized if you're not united with him by faith. Come to Jesus. Repent and believe. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us to hear all that is right and good today, all that is true, and help us to respond to all of that with our lives. I pray for your church, that you will use this text as an encouragement for us to persevere and endure with confidence, for us to proclaim the hope of salvation to our lost neighbors despite, despite opposition, that you will help us to live with Christ-like righteousness in this fallen world. Father, I pray for those who are outside in their sins, that this text will serve as an offer of salvation to them and an invitation to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, that they will hear that judgment is coming and that they will hear that salvation is available only through Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll grant repentance so that they will turn from their sins. I pray that you will grant faith so that they will trust in Christ. Give it, Father, and change their lives forever and ever for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.